0: please take your Bible and uh, meet me in Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there are some provided for you under the the chairs. And then of course, if you don't have a Bible at all, if you don't have a Bible to call your own, uh, we would just love to be able to give you a Bible so you can take one of those Bibles under the chairs as uh, our gift to you and that would be... Uh, just of the lights, be able to equip you with your own copy of God's Word. In a 2016 article for Time Magazine, Mary Eberstadt voices her concern over today's growing intolerance of Christianity in America. Well researched and to the point, she describes how American Christians are increasingly fearful of expressing their faith. She concedes that Christians in our country have, quote, long been on the losing end of culture war contests, unquote, citing school prayer and same-sex marriage as examples. She, She then offers more recent instances of those who've paid the price for their Christian beliefs. The teacher in New Jersey, suspended for giving a student a Bible. The football coach in Washington, placed on leave for saying a prayer at the, on the field at the end of a game. The fire chief in Atlanta, fired for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teaching. Uh, the Marine, court-martialed for pasting a Bible verse above her desk and other examples of the new intolerance. Eberstadt notes, quote, this new vigorous secularism has catapulted mockery of Christianity into the mainstream. Unquote. And sadly, this seems to be having its intended effect. According to a study cited in the article, fewer Americans today describe themselves as religiously affiliated, while the percentage of the self-identified unaffiliated is growing. So as we come again to the book of Acts this morning, I just want us to know that there is a degree of comfort in knowing that opposition to Christianity is nothing new. Chapter 3, remember, describes how certain members of the church we publicly ministering in Jesus' name to great effect, but chapter 4 reveals that not everyone took kindly to it. Chapter 4 marks the beginning of opposition to the church and its ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week, we considered the first 12 verses of chapter 4, concluding that despite all the resistance through the years, people of all ages from all over the world are still being saved to God by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. I just want us to be assured, and I, it's good to remind each other of this, that Jesus promised to build His church, and He has, and He is. But, to profess faith in Jesus and to walk in obedience to Him, comes with cost. As I know you've experienced, the pressure to conform to the world's way of thinking is very real. So as we look in on the conclusion of this episode this morning, I want us to consider how to respond to the growing opposition we face as Christians today. And my conclusion from this passage is, is simply this, the closer we walk with Jesus, the more we are filled With the Holy Spirit, and the more we're filled with the Spirit, the deeper our confidence in God. The closer we walk with Jesus, the more we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and the more we're filled with the Spirit, the deeper our confidence in God. So I want to read the entirety of this passage, Acts chapter 4 beginning at verse 1 and continuing through verse 31. You can follow along with me. And as they were speaking to the people, that's the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, and others, other disciples, other followers of Christ who had gathered around this healing that took place on that day. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all, in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of all the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. Will you pray along with me? Father, almighty God, We thank you again this morning for your word. We thank you for its ability to to get to the point, to cut to the heart, to address the matters of everyday life. We thank you for its ability to to distinguish between worldly wisdom and wisdom from above. Because, Lord, we know that the world is fundamentally opposed to God and to the things of God, and therefore fundamentally opposed to the people of God. Even in our day, even in this wonderfully blessed, divinely blessed country, the opposition is mounting and intensifying. And so we pray that as we consider your word this morning, would you give us the ability to hear it, to receive it, to apply it in our day and age. For your namesake and for the exaltation of Christ the Lord. Amen. Now, there are many ways to approach this passage, but the question before us today is how to respond to opposition. As followers of Jesus, how should we respond when opposition comes our way? And so I want to walk through this scene with you, noting five things along the way. Five ways to face opposition. Five things. Five ways to face opposition as I see it here in Acts chapter 4. And the first is this When facing opposition, keep Jesus front and center. I want you to see how the Apostle Peter, when questioned by the authorities, remained true to the truth of Christ. Church, there are many issues today worthy of discussion and dialogue. We could talk about abortion gender identity, sexuality, and various political agendas. We could discuss things like the California Bill AB 2943 that was recently uh, approved in the, in the state assembly and is moving its way toward vote. These are important things, all of them. They're all worthy of our discussion and worthy of our engagement, but they are not most important. What is of utmost importance is the person and work of Jesus Christ and one's personal response to him. We've all been there. We've all been in conversation with someone when suddenly it turns toward religion and our Christian faith. And what often happens in those moments is that the person raises concern with a certain issue, not to initiate sincere dialogue about the issue, but to to direct blame at Christianity. In those moments, we have a choice to make. Do we engage in combative, Opinionated, emotionally charged discussion on the issue? Or do we redirect to frame the discussion within the necessary context of Christ and his saving, redemptive work in the world? Look with me here at verses 8 through 12. Basically, the Jews in this passage were upset about protocol. They didn't ask what happened or why it happened or even how it happened, notice. Their concern is who authorized and allowed it to happen. They're ticked that Peter and John didn't recognize their authority and therefore went rogue by healing the man in the name of Jesus. But in verses 8 through 12, Peter subtly, yet so effectively, redirected the conversation to make Jesus the main topic of consideration. The members of the council were thinking in terms of an earthly authority when the disciples brought to the fore the divine authority of Christ. Jesus rose from the dead, Peter said, And by the power of God, He has become the cornerstone of redemption, for there is no other name under heaven in all humanity by which we must be saved. And now forced, really forced to deal with Jesus, the council conferred. And in verses 17 and 18, they warn the disciples to no longer speak or teach in His name. And my... My, my point here, my contention here is that simply by keeping Jesus front and center, Peter caused them to think about Christ to draw a conclusion concerning Christ and therefore he left open the possibility that they could come to faith in Christ. You see, one of the hallmarks of our faith is that it's come as you are. Which means that God doesn't require people to clean up their act before coming to faith. He doesn't require them, hear this, He doesn't require them to believe all the right things or behave in all the right ways before coming to faith in Christ. Instead, we can turn to God in sincere repentance at any time, regardless of our situation, regardless of our stance on a particular issue. And God, we're told, by the authority of His Word and by the power of the Gospel, God will forgive and cleanse and begin to sanctify us from the inside out, including some of our our sometimes misguided view of things. I don't know about you, but I can assure you that my view of things has changed significantly as I've grown in Christ. And sometimes, church, we need to allow people that same privilege, that same opportunity. Therefore, as important as they are, and they are, please don't misunderstand me, as important as these issues are Let's not get sidetracked by the peripherals. Whenever possible, make Jesus the focal point, not your particular, uh, not your position on a particular issue. Because in the end, hear this: we're not trying to convince people we're right and win them to our side. We want to win them to Jesus. For we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus, the Lord. Number two. When facing opposition, stand firm and speak from experience. By this I mean to stand by your conviction and let your own testimony, your own testimony, let your testimony do its thing. They told the disciples to no longer speak or teach in the name of Christ. Now, how would Peter and John respond to this not so thinly veiled threat? Would they back down? Would they compromise? Or would they stand their ground? And verse 19 tells us the answer. When Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must decide. In other words, I love this. They put the ball back in the court of the court. Now hear this. In a way, they affirmed, they did, they affirmed the court's authority to judge the matter. But like Daniel before King Darius, they made it clear that they answered to a higher authority. Standing by your conviction requires that you have conviction. When you are confident of your position, or better yet, confident in God, You don't have to be threatened by someone's challenge. You don't have to win at all costs. You don't have to be abrasive or take offense or stop listening. You don't have to shout across the aisle or monologue at society. When it's your turn to speak, simply speak of what you have seen and heard as they did in verse 20. Isn't this what a witness does? A witness's testimony is valid only to the degree that is firsthand. You don't have to know everything about Jesus. Just share what you know. Speak from your own experience, from the heart. I find it interesting how the apostles weren't trying to debate. Instead, they basically said it's the court's job to decide but our decisions already made. As far as they were concerned, the matter was settled and they couldn't help but speak about what God had done. You see, there is power in your personal testimony. I want to say that again because I want you to hear this. There is power in your personal testimony. You may think that you don't have much to say or don't have much of a testimony, but I assure you, you do. Do you realize that the spread of the gospel owes primarily to the power of personal testimony. The gospel has advanced from that day to this day because men and women who met Jesus shared their experience with others who hadn't. You don't have to be a seasoned apologist who knows all the points and counterpoints of theology. You don't have to be a gifted evangelist who can skillfully weave Jesus into any conversation, and you certainly aren't expected to change a person's heart because you can't. But you can speak from the heart. You can be a witness for Jesus just by standing firm and speaking from experience. Number three. When facing opposition, find support in the church. Look with me at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. The very first thing then, the very first thing they did upon their release was to update the church with what happened. Some translations say they went to their own companions or their own company or their own people, but I love how the ESV translates this when it says they went to their friends. Peter and John went back to the church for the support they needed from other believers who had become their friends. People, the church is a place where our lives intersect and friendships are made. Now, who would have planned this? Who would have planned this? But we have in our church a small group of people who have essentially become a cancer support group for one another. People who have either lost a loved one to cancer or someone they love currently has cancer and this small group of individuals is supporting one another through the difficulty of cancer. I sat over here uh, uh, after service last Sunday and I looked across the room to see some individuals from this small group of people gathering to encourage one another and share each other's burden now listen we never formalized a cancer support ministry it's never been an agenda item on the elder or staff levels instead it has been it has come organically it's been born out of need and out of genuine concern and care for one another it's second corinthians chapter 1 in action it's God comforting us in our affliction so that we can comfort others in theirs. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Your Christian community is essential. to your faith, your growth in Christ. It bothers me when I hear some Christians or I see and observe who are too isolated, too withdrawn from the church, As if the church is optional. And it's not good. The unwillingness to let others into your life and entering into the lives of others keeps us from building the necessary ties that are meant by God to help us. You can't find community like this You cannot find community like this apart from the church, which is why your participation and investment in the church is so much more than what you get out of it. Though their service to the gospel was threatened and opposed by forces beyond their control, Peter and John found strength and solace in the church and members of the church were there for them as good friends are. The apostles are, were willing to open up and share what was going on while others in the church opened themselves up to receive what was being shared. So on both sides, there was openness and willingness and the desire for community. Church is important. We are a community of support and friendship for one another. <clears throat> Number four. When facing opposition, remember, remember, remember that God is in control. Verses 24 and following describe what the church did when they heard the news. And what did they do? They prayed. And they prayed in two specific ways, notice. First, they remembered that God is sovereign. In verse 24, they lift their voices together to address God as sovereign Lord. The creator who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and and all that is within them and In verses 25 and 26, they quote Scripture, Psalm 2 in particular, about how the world's opposition toward the Lord is nothing new, and that it's toward God ultimately, not us. You know, Ephesians 6 says, "...we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness." against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, we're in a spiritual battle and the forces at work in the spiritual realm are affecting the world in which we live. In verse 27, the members of the church recognize this spiritual battle taking place by perceiving that the hostility of the people in Jerusalem at that time was directed mainly at Jesus But hear this, none of it, none of it caught them by surprise because in verse 28, they acknowledge that all of it was, in fact, part of God's overarching redemptive plan from the beginning. Loved ones, we need to realize this. We need to realize that God has us here for a reason and that opposition is to be expected. We're to advance His heavenly kingdom here on earth. That's the reason. Which means helping people to understand and embrace His will for their lives, but because people are bent toward their own will by nature, persuading them to embrace God's means resistance. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that opposition won't come your way. But it does mean that when it comes, there is a higher purpose in play, a redemptive one. And you may not see it or even understand it, but you can believe it. So what then shall we say to these things Romans 8:31 asks rhetorically If God is for us who can be against us Now don't miss the significance here If God is for you who can be against you Personalize it. If God is for me, who can be against me? Let's picture it. If all the opposition in the world was on that side of the battlefield, charging toward me, and only God was on my side, standing with me. Who wins? God wins. And because God wins, I win. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We're told in First John chapter 5. You know the song, the Sunday school. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. Do you believe it? Rest in God's sovereignty. Remember that God is in control. And then number five, fifth and finally. When facing opposition, pray for opportunity and boldness. Having acknowledged God's sovereignty and total control, and I think that's important. I think the order of things is important. I think, they, I think there's a, there are times when, when we just have to pause and remember that God is in charge, that God is in control. And when we remember that, then we can come out and we can pray as they did in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. It's interesting to me. They didn't pray for protection. They didn't pray for the opposition to cease. They didn't withdraw or shrink back. They prayed for even more opportunity and for boldness to seize those opportunities when they come. There's such great application for us here in this verse. What were... What were they to do as they saw? What was their role? They were to speak. And what were they to speak? They were to speak God's Word, God's truth, God's Gospel, to be God's messenger. They were to open their mouths and say something. They were to give verbal testimony to the wonders of Jesus. And how often were they to do this? Continually, right? Grant to your servants to continue to speak. And in what way were they to speak? With all boldness. Now, why pray for opportunity? Because Jesus had told them to be his witnesses. He'd commissioned them to carry the mission forward. And why pray for boldness? Because, as you know, the work isn't easy. Because the temptation to hide in silence is real. Because fear is a real foe and an intimidating one at that. Let's just admit it. I'll admit it. We're afraid. Aren't we? We're afraid of opposition, rejection, or worse. We're afraid of what could happen if we speak of Jesus, afraid of losing our job, afraid of losing status or social capital, afraid of losing friends or family members who believe differently and don't appreciate our views. You have felt that fear, and so have I, and it's menacing, So we pray for boldness because fear is a formidable foe. You know, consider how often in the New Testament we read of the need for boldness and courage and courageous faith. And we read that so often in the New Testament because fear is real. And because God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. How then How then do we become more bold, more courageous, more willing? How? How do we become more bold, more courageous, more willing? And I think the answer is also in this passage. I think it's by being with Jesus and entering into His ministry with Him In the Spirit. Look back at verse 13. I love this verse. And you will too. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's a tremendous statement. Wouldn't you want to be recognized like that? As having been with Jesus. You know, we tend to put the apostles on a high pedestal, assuming they were more godly than we are or cut from a more spiritual cloth or they had more of the spirit than we do. But according to verse 13, that's not the case at all. Verse 13 paints an entirely different picture. Verse 13 mentions two things that Peter and John weren't, and one thing they were. They were not educated, meaning theologically trained. They'd not gone to seminary or rabbinical school. They were your average blue collar middle class dudes. And they were common. It says they were average. They were ordinary. But they had been with Jesus. And that made all the difference. In his book, Ministry in the Image of God, Stephen Siemens makes this all-important point when he says, quote, the ministry we have entered is first and foremost the ministry of Jesus Christ. Unquote. Which may not sound insightful at first, though it's actually quite profound. You see, you are on ministry with Jesus, meaning that it isn't about you doing things for Jesus. It's about being with Jesus as He does things in and through you. That's a world of difference. I'm curious, with all of this in mind, would we be willing to apply this prayer? Would you be willing to apply this prayer? Could we apply this prayer in Acts chapter 4 to our lives this week? I, I'm gonna, I've got a post-it note. The post-it note simply reads Acts 4.29. That post-it note is going to be with me for the week so that every morning I wake up, And somewhere in the course of my morning, I'm going to see that post-it note and think of Acts 4.29 and think of this prayer. Would you be willing to pray this prayer each morning and at least be open to the idea of what God might do as a result when you wake up and have your coffee, have your time with God or or get ready for the day, whatever your morning routine looks like, would you ask the Lord for opportunity to speak of Jesus as you go about your day and then for boldness to seize the opportunity when it comes? Acts 4.29. Can we apply Acts 4.29 this week? You see, that's our part. To walk with Jesus in His ministry, in the Spirit, while leaving the results to God because That's also what we see here in Acts 4. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, Lord, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So we move forward with Jesus, praying for opportunity, praying for boldness, seizing those opportunities as he provides them, knowing that that all the results are in His hands. The scene then ends with a clear sign that God heard and affirmed and supported their prayers. The place was shaken. The people were again filled with the Holy Spirit. And they went forth, we're told. They went forth boldly proclaiming the Word of God. Professing faith in Christ... And walking in obedience to him does, it does, it does come with cost. But from this passage, we learn to respond to opposition by keeping Jesus front and center, by standing firm and speaking from experience, by finding support and friendship in the church by remembering that God is in control and by praying for opportunity and boldness. Like those early followers of Christ, the closer we walk with Jesus, the more we are filled with the Holy Spirit and the more we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the deeper our confidence in God. Amen. Amen. Sovereign Lord, we thank you, you who have the you who have have the whole world in your hands. The creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. We acknowledge and remember and rejoice that you are in control. That none of this catches you by surprise. We pray that you would help us to rest and remember to rest in your sovereignty and remember these things. We ask that you would grant to us the grace that would come with more opportunity to be witnesses for Jesus and for boldness that would overcome our fears when those opportunities arise. So even this week, as we go out and about, as the church that has now gathered, as we scatter this week and go out into the world, grant us grace to go out in power and deep, deep confidence in God. For the glory of your name, and for the good of your church. Amen.